So it turns out that OS that Huawei was working on, not exactly a replacement for Android. That's coming from the source directly. Uh, this was broadcast originally on Chinese state news agency Xinhua. And they noted that the OS had actually been in development for a really long time, but with the focus of potentially being an OS for IoT devices and not even necessarily smartphones. And it's kind of a it's kind of an odd thing because when the original news broke, and who knows why, but when the original news broke about the the Trump ban and potentially the restrictions regarding Google and Android and how that was all going to interact with Huawei post-ban, everybody was coming out saying, well, no big deal. They're working on Hong Meng OS, which is going to be faster than Android, better than Android. Like, if you're a brand, you got to appreciate that type of press. People out there saying, I mean, whether you're going to deliver it or not, you got to appreciate that type of press. People out there saying, oh, yeah, you're going to have this great product if you need it. And then, so for them to come out, in his report here and state that it turns out, hey, that wasn't our target. This wasn't a replacement for Android. This uh, this was just a thing, you know, a supplementary thing. It was for other purposes. It sends a message that Android is this powerful operating system that would be tough to replicate. And all, all, all this in the face, in the midst of the of the ban still potentially looming, even though it appears that it's, it's a little less tight than it used to be. So there were two separate reports. One uh, that made the statement about the OS originally being for IoT devices, and then the other one saying, hey, we're not trying to be Android. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Huawei isn't working on something else that could potentially re uh, replace Android. I mean, not, they didn't make any kind of statement along those lines. But I still feel like it's kind of a weird report to come out because it doesn't really help Huawei, or maybe it does. I don't know. Maybe it's some sort of gesture to imply that the relationship with Android is necessary because, as you noticed, what ended up happening... With all the interviews that the CEO was 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 doing, talking about the ban and so on, what you notice happening there was that he was kind of, I mean, he was willing to admit that that this ban was going to be a big problem for for the company. I mean, he said they were going to be okay, but they're going to have to reduce their expectations from a profit and revenue perspective. That that, that things were, people were going to have to chill out a little bit. He, they, he was willing to admit it was going to be tumultuous moving forward. So they started to play sort of both sides of it, being realistic, but at the same time saying we're going to be okay. And then so maybe when the report started to float out that they were so ready with this alternative operating system, it was like, well, then there's less of, an, of a need to, to provide some relief in the band department, that there's less of a need for the Google situation to be wrapped up and fixed up. So... Maybe this is kind of uh, in search of some degree of sympathy. I can't say for certain. It's obviously strictly speculation at this point. But interesting nonetheless to see a report like this emerge, especially a report like this to run on Chinese state media, which would imply that, hey, it probably has the support of the group involved. So what else do we have here? 
the Hongmeng system has previously been reported widely in the media as a potential alternative to Android on smartphones. But when asked at a media roundtable in Brussels, Chen was unequivocal that it was not designed for that. Chen being uh, a board member and vice president of Huawei. She said the recently trademarked Hongmeng is for individual, sorry, she said that the trademarked Hongmeng is for industrial use, not, not individual use, and actually has been in development long before the current discussions around finding an alternative to Android. So it could be one of those situations where it just got attached, where there was something in-house that looked similar enough and it got attached to reports. Hey, it's going to be great. It's going to be fast. It's going to be better than Android. Could, could it, it could just be confusion. But to me, this seems to imply that you know, Huawei wants to send the message out there that, hey, we're still, we're still pals with Android, with Google. We, we, we want things to stay the way they are, at least in that department for the time being. And, and this news of, of Hong Meng being this replacement, we want to kind of squash that a little bit. That's what this report and these public comments from a senior ranking official from Huawei, that, that's what that seems to imply to me. So I don't think the Hong Meng replacing Android thing was ever uh, realistic. All the comments in the in the in the videos where I'm where I've been reporting on this, you see people saying, "Fine, perfect. We need more selection." I think it turns out it's harder to create that alternative than we we may all have originally imagined. Mm -hmm. That's that's my take on the matter. Uh, Sony, talk a little bit about Sony because I looked at that recent Xperia One and I was like, "Hey, man, they're th this is this is a good look for them." Company that's been sort of passed over of recent in the smartphone department, uh, but but incredible origin story in the technology world. Well, they, uh, this this group, Let's Go Digital, who they're constantly tracking various patents that are being submitted, looking for what, you know, what the tech companies are currently up to, discovered Sony has their very own folding phone patent. And... Their design, apparently, there's some renders to go with it because that's what you do. You find the patent, Will. Mm. You go search, you hunt for the patent, and then you get the artist to do the render. Now you got your article online. You see how that works? And then we come along and we find the article and we point people to the art. You see how that works, Will? Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's uh, industrious. Anyhow, it's interesting nonetheless because it goes to show you that Many of these manufacturers agree that this is that futuristic, amb ambitious smartphone future. This is the goal everyone's looking towards. So their particular uh, patent application, their implementation of the folding display, it, 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 it folds in the middle similar to the Motorola Razor concept. And it, so it once folded sort of fits into a tiny little square. Now, what's interesting about their patent, if you go to the original post there on Let's Go Digital, even though the post is, I believe it's in Dutch. I think this site's from the Netherlands. Anyhow, what's interesting about their patent filing is also how you're going to interact with the device. It's going to have various touch sensors on the back, which can read your fingertips on the flexible display. And so it should be able to track what orientation you're using the device in and potentially change the interface based on that so that's another part of the patent and it's kind of interesting because that is one of those areas where you're like how do you make sure that the thing is more useful in these various formats 
Uh, my experience, for example, my, my experience with the Galaxy Fold was like, I'm just fold, I'm, I'm opening it up every time because there was no special functionality when you had it closed. It was just a smaller version of the eventual unfolded one. But imagine if you had different ways of interacting with the folded version versus the unfolded to then justify having both, say for single-handed versus dual-handed. Could be interesting, especially if it could do so on demand just by gauging how you're holding the device. That's another part of the patent, making it interesting. But again, this just points in the direction of the thing we've been talking about. Smartphone manufacturers and beyond that, all tech companies are looking for that next thing. They're looking for that iPod moment, iPhone moment. They're looking for that moment of like, oh, now we have the thing that everybody has to upgrade to. Now we have the thing that is going to, where we're going to be able to get some credit card numbers. Hmm. We're, we're going to be able to get some transactions take place, finally, because everything else appears to be somewhat stagnant for the time being. And uh, we need that new form factor. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. If, if you and I will, if we're working at Sony, if we're working at Samsung, if we're, we got to get that new form factor. Yeah, that, that gets a lot of eyeballs, the folding display. We need some eyeballs. Man, I just wish they really concentrated on something like more nuanced, like battery life or something. Some sort of battery tech. You're talking about something we could use right now. Yeah. Just a heavy-duty, heavy-hitter battery. like a week or Well, something. charging. Faster charging will. Yeah. They're doing that, at least. They got yeah. you covered on yeah. that one. We got some more information here on Google Stadia. So, covered it a couple times. It's gotten a lot of attention. C- could disrupt the gaming industry, for real. I believe that. It could change things. Maybe slowly at first, but eventually. Uh, there was a, what is it, what do they call it? A Reddit AMA, yeah. Mm-hmm. the One of the head guys over at working on Stadia, the director of product, he went and did an AMA, and he got a lot of people got all the questions they had. They got them out there into the world because people still had questions even after the presentations. He wanted to get people away from the idea of Stadia being the Netflix for gaming, that there would be no all-you-can-eat buffet type of gaming experience to be had on Stadia. Not that anyone expected it. It seems like a cool idea. It would be awesome. But he's saying that's not the case. Though, he did say... He believes the $10 a month tier of Stadia is going to be worthwhile. To be clear, Stadia Pro is not Netflix for games. Like some people have mentioned, he said, a closer comparison would be like Xbox Live Gold or PlayStation Plus. The Pro subscribers get 4K HDR streaming, 5.1 sound, exclusive discounts, and access to some free games. He then says, this is the important part, roughly one free game per month, give or take, starting with Destiny 2. Give or take, which is a bit weird. Just say it. Are we going to get one game per month? Now, for $10, if you could commit to one game per month, I think that would be compelling for a lot of people. Games are typically more than 10 bucks, And uh, you get to try something new that you might not have otherwise selected, plus you get the discounts on the other stuff. Now, keep in mind, there will be a free tier, which is the most interesting part of this. Uh, 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 a YouTube tier. Just load it up, launch it up, and go. Now, you're still going to have to, of course, buy the games within that tier, but you're going to get access to their gaming hardware, essentially, because that's what you're accessing. All Your, your gameplay is happening on their hardware, and you're going to get access to that, essentially. It's like having a gaming PC. you got to pay for the game, but you're using their gaming PC. You don't have to go buy it. So there is a compelling argument in that department alone. An- another takeaway from the AMA 
is that the controller, the Stadia official controller, will not support Bluetooth audio. So you'll have to use headphones via the 3.5 millimeter audio jack. But if you're playing on a Pixel phone or PC mobile device, then Bluetooth audio will work. So you can use your wireless headphones along with uh, along with Stadia gaming. Uh, and the oh, and the Chromecast Ultra, obviously, you are you're also going to need that if you're utilizing the Stadia controller. So that's how your setup would look in the in the controller console implementation. Chromecast Ultra, Stadia controller, wired audio. Of course, you could have the speakers through coming through the television, but wired headset, or if you're on mobile, Bluetooth headset is supported. So we get a little bit more information on Stadia, Stadia Pro, 10 bucks a month. It's going to take some time, man, to, to change. I mean, this is, I, I guess I've been saying that now for a bit. It's the concept is disruptive, but the disruption will not happen immediately because you're asking people to come over to a whole new platform and whole new thought process about how they're going to interact with games from a company that really has no history in it outside the realm of the Play Store. And so can they deliver? Will they give up on it? That's another question a lot of people had. Like, are you really going to stand behind this? Because we watch you come introduce new products and kill them. Google Plus. Mm-hmm. And there's been many others. But he also tried to he also tried to calm people down on that front and say, hey, we're committed to this. This is uh, this is our big is a big deal to us, and so so we're gonna really invest in it and make it work. And if they actually do that, as you know, will they got a boatload of resources? As you know, so they would be a company that could do it. Mm-hmm. Staying on Google for a minute, did you know that they will pay you tremendous amounts of money to report bugs? Google, a Chrome bug, for example, they'll pay you up to thirty thousand bucks to be a digital bounty hunter this uh this gotta this gotta make you reconsider your your career yeah. at this point mm-hmm. you see and uh it goes even higher than that if you can find a bug in chrome os the standing reward hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Will, what are we doing here <laughs> me and you we gotta go investigate now obviously this is very difficult to find these types of bugs it's sort of like you're you as the bug finder are up against the, the, some big-time developers who know what they're doing and have the, the, designed the, the program, designed the code in such a fashion in the first place to obviously avoid this from taking place. So it's, it's big money on the line, but it's also a much bigger task than it sounds. And, you know, another thing, I was reading this article, and I was like, okay, yeah, that's a lot of money. That's really interesting. But then I got to a point in the article where they said, hey, there's big money in these vulnerabilities, not just from the, the creator, not just from Google, but from the flip side. You see that, Will? So people that want to exploit. The bad guys. Yeah. The bad guys will outbid the, the companies. That's really what this is about. They'll be like, if you find a sick exploit, yeah. you can go post that somewhere and sell it for big money, if people think they can, for example, extract a ton of user data, they'll pay you $100,000 and be like, yeah, mm. I need that exploit. Mm. How wild is that? So it's some sort of arms race going on. I mean, we just use the products, you and I. Yeah, We're not doing this on our spare time. Yeah. We just use the products. But it's amazing to imagine this type of warfare going on behind the scenes. Mm. Code, bug, hunting 
big game hunting in the code bug scenario. You see that? Yeah. The rates will probably go up. It's a bidding war. Yeah. If all of a sudden the bad guys are like, we're going to escalate, we're going to increase our 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 uh, our bid. We're going to up it up to a boatload. And, they then, get, and then Chrome, uh, Google's like, we're going to up it up to like, Two boatloads. That's the thing. I then, feel like I feel like now, well, now we're in a conspiracy territory yeah. where you go, oh, let me, if you're a good bug hunter, you create the demand, mm. right? You pretend you got these massive offers. It's like these fake auctions on eBay. You 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 intentionally raise the price. You see that? Intentionally raise the price, so then Google has to come back with the extra, even though there was no threat to begin with, even right. though you didn't have the offer to begin with. You right. see that? We're deeper. We're going layers into the potential bug hunting conspiracy. But anyhow, I don't know. What's my? If you know anything about bug about doing this, uh, go for it, man. Go make thirty grand or one hundred fifty grand. It's uh, in in twenty since twenty ten. Google said people have reported over eight hundred eighty five hundred bugs. And Google has paid out, listen to this, over $5 million. Now, let me ask you this, Will. Do you feel like those rewards are big enough that somebody could take this on as a full-time job? Could somebody just say to themselves, look, I'm going to find that Chrome bug. I'm going to take a year. I'm going to get that 150 grand. I think hackers would, right? That's a full-time job anyways. I don't to know. To find exploits. Uh, it's kind of like, like some sort of advanced version of online poker. Mm. Just like it might take me a year, but I'm going to... I'm going to hit it big one day. Mm -hmm. But now, granted, you're still kind of invested in your future because I would imagine if you end up successful at uncovering these bugs, not only may you end up with the reward, you might end up with a job. Yeah. Google might say, here's your 100, 100 grand, plus we'll see you in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You're coming down. That's going to happen more frequently now because we like what you're doing because that's how hard it is to uncover these things. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, if you want to shift careers, there's there's one for you to go into, Will. I Old highly recommend actor. it. Company aims to make flying less miserable with roomier design for middle seat and two-level armrests. This is simple. This is genius. Something I've been thinking about since the very first time I flew on a plane. The armrest wars. You been in an armrest war before, Will? Yeah. Who gets the re armrest? Who's in the front? Who's in the back? What are the parameters? What are the rules? Well, Terrible. this company, they were just like, oh, you know what? We're just going to solve it. No big deal. We're just going to solve it. And you know how they solved it? They took the middle seat. Oh, by the way, this design has already been purchased by various airlines, and you're going to see it coming up very soon. That's how good it is. They took the middle seat. They made it a tiny bit lower. They put, they put it back a tiny bit from the aisle seat and window seat. And then they took the armrest and made it two tiers. So you're like in a bit more of a little cockpit there in the center. So your arms are going to go on the lower tier of the armrest towards the back. Also, because you're recessed back more than the individuals in front of you. So if you scroll down a little bit on that web page, you will see how the implementation looks. You see that, Will? So simple. And now it's so clearly defined as well. There's no wars to take place. Right. You just know one person gets the backside, one person gets the front side of the two tier. And for those of you that are just listening to this, basically what you have is a one-piece armrest design, but with two different heights and then a connector piece in between the two. So it just scales up, moves over, but it still looks like 
a regular armrest. Like it still has a very similar uh, profile. It looks like a lightning bolt. That's right. Like if you were to draw a cartoon lightning bolt, it has the little, the little, uh, well, you, the little dash in the middle there, and then it continues on. So apparently, uh, ten airlines are already in talks with this company. They love it, as they should. The middle seat is terrible. The middle seat's a nightmare. If you are about to take a long flight and you didn't like pick the seat in advance, and you end up in that middle seat, you know your life's. Yeah, you're dead. Your life's going to be a certain way for the next couple of hours, and it might not be a good way. And I think people are going to be just calmer in general on these flights, mm -hmm. knowing that there's a place for their elbows. I know it sounds insane, but that weird subconscious, are we going to talk about it? Are we going to have a discussion, an elbow discussion? Once I hit the middle seat, are we am, am, are we going to talk about who's got the the rest and where? And you get stuck there with some big dudes. Oh. It's even more of an issue. Yeah. So this company, I love it. They want to put an end to the elbow wars, and I feel like they're kind of on their way now. They actually pioneered another, even more advanced type of cabin, where the seats themselves like some sort of puzzle slide on rails and can, can change their f configuration depending on the layout. That's even crazier. It's a staggered design so that there's never three, com uh, three seats on an identical plane. And I don't mean plane like the plane. I mean a plane. Look at this, Will. You see this? That's unbelievable. Hmm. Comes out. You get loaded up. Anyway, I love this kind of thing. It doesn't have to be the way that it is. Air travel doesn't have to be miserable. People are working on it. I find that exciting. I get it. It's just a middle seat. But I'm telling you, next time you're on a middle seat and it's the old-fashioned, you're going to be thinking of this moment in this podcast. You're going to be thinking when your elbow, when your elbow skin touches another man's elbow skin, in that moment, you're going to be thinking about this moment. You're going to be saying to yourself, man, I can't wait. For this new, this new tech in a place where I didn't expect it. Mm. A simple, staggered, two-level armrest. Unbelievable. We, we talked recently on a podcast, Will, about uh, the Juul stuff with the, with the vape. Mm -hmm. What were we talking about last time? Oh, we're talking about how the guy, the CEO, apologized yep. for the advertising campaign. He basically he apologized to parents, the parents of America because of the teen... Jewel epidemic. 20% of high school kids are, are on the jewels now. They're running the jewels. They're jeweling. They're jeweling. Um, and so he apologized. He's like, look, more studies have to be done. I don't know. We gotta, we're working on it. I mean, it's easy to be working on it when they got that big uh investment from big tobacco. Big tobacco, big investment. They got they got all that money and now they gotta go figure it out. The sales, I mean, they got money in the bank, but they're taking all kinds of heat right now from the regulators because nobody really knows. The studies haven't been done yet about the effect of it, particularly on young people. Well, one study has been done, and this study suggests a link between the Juul uh, vaporizer and strokes, having strokes. And as soon as this gets published, you get 
a lawsuit pretty much immediately after. This guy, Maxwell Berger, 22 years old, says he developed an addiction to Juul products during summer of 2015. It's hard to imagine they've been around that long. And that's what the lawsuit states. By 2017, he was taking puffs of his Juul as often as every 10 minutes, he says. Every 10 minutes, wow. Causing him to go through around two cartridges every day. That July, he had a massive stroke. There's a word before it, hemorrhagic stroke, which required three brain surgeries and more than 100 days in the hospital, the lawsuit states. It has left him with catastrophic and permanent injuries, such as left side paralysis, speech impairment, and a 50% loss of vision from both eyes. So, a San Francisco-based law firm, they take on the case and they think, hey, we can go prove that Jewel is liable for this man's injuries. And I'm guessing a big part of that has to do with them being able to reference this particular study in which they're going to they're going to try to say they're going to try to make the case that the jewel pods were responsible for this man's for this man's injuries. Now that's obviously a big leap. People have strokes. People have issues. There's so many variables. So many variables, and 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 you're not going to be able to tell. But the, the, the study itself, many are saying, is kind of mimicking some of the early studies around smoking. It's a bit strokey. Well, smoking was leading to strokes too. Just yeah. smoking regular uh, cigarettes is what I'm saying. Right. And when, they, when, when, when uh, cigarettes came to market, they, didn't, they weren't being studied. There weren't the clinical studies immediately. Cigarettes it, were good for you. It took time. Uh, the doctors were smoking in, in the, inside the While examination room. babies. That's right. They they say you could lose weight or, yeah. or stay perked up or have energy or whatever anyway. So the other thing is this guy had a pretty heavy pod dosage, two pods a day, right, which is about two packs a day from what I can understand. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't the only lawsuit. There's another one apparently in Florida by the looks of it, where a 15-year-old says that he developed seizures from using the thing. Now, also, it's important to note that th if, if this is as popular as the study suggests, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of users, uh, of high school students using it, or have tried it, or whatever the original stat was from the previous episode, you also have to believe that there's just going to be a correlation here. You're going to have enough units out there, enough users uh, out there, that some of them are going to have issues and they're going to wonder, was it the, the, the jewel that, that led to it? So the interesting part for me, in particular, is the study linking strokes to e-cigarettes. Researchers from the University of Kansas School of Medicine used data from a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention administered survey. 400,000 individuals, Well, that's a no-joke survey, sir. It's almost half a million people in that survey. It's a huge pool for a survey. They found that compared to non-users, e-cigarette users have a 71% greater risk of stroke. You see that, man? Well, That's a big number. Yeah. Now, I am sure that right now, tobacco researchers, especially those that have a stake in Juul, they're out trying to get the study to say the opposite thing. They're trying to find the people who had no stroke. They're trying to find the people who are in better physical condition than they've ever been in because of the double pod per day usage. They're out there. You know they're doing it. And that's the thing. This is going to go back and forth for a while. But this particular study at least has me interested. I'm like, wow, that could be, that could be some heavy stuff if it turns out to be true. Now, of course, there's nicotine in here. 
What does nicotine do? You know, it's a stimulant, I suppose. There's some, it, it's, it's doing something for your body that, you're, that you become addicted to. So a stimulant. So heavy nicotine use, you have to assume, at some point could have some kind of side effect. And these jewel pods in particular, as we've, as we've referenced in the past, especially the early ones, the originals have high, high nicotine dose. So if you're running on a stimulant to the tune of a puff or two puffs every 10 minutes, you're, you might be redlining your cardiovascular system a little bit, which could then theoretically lead to these strokes. That's at least the report. I'm not telling people what to do. Do what you got to do. But if it's true, you deserve to know. You could still choose to use it. Maybe you're going to use it less. Maybe we're going to get to a cigarette place where the package has to say associated with a, a higher higher risk. Now, I think this is particularly interesting right now because you also have the advertising thing going on where they where where uh, regulators think that they were predatory in that. Then you tag on these lawsuits with the health component, and you're just starting to have you're starting to see the package take form. Well. I think it's going to be the same thing that you had with tobacco once upon a time. We're going to have, it's going to happen all over again. And they're going to have to go through and regulate it and all the rest of it. So there you have it. A lawsuit. Which car brands have the most loyal customers in 2019? Uh, they say that this is a very important, uh, important component in the automotive industry, customer retention is what they look for because what it means is that a person is connected to the brand. They trust the brand, that they're not cross-shopping, that they just, they might be a customer for life. It turns out when you sell a person a car, Will, you're not trying to sell them one car. You're trying to sell them the rest of their cars for life. Mm -hmm. They're going to enjoy that car and it's going to be fine and they're just going to stick with it, be proud of it, connected to the brand. Now, Toyota's been at the top of the list for a while. They were top of the list last year. But they got displaced this year. They do two lists, one for luxury brands and one for, uh, for mass market brands. Subaru beat out Toyota this year. And I think that's interesting because I've been noticing something about Subaru's marketing where they really try. Did you see the one where it's like a fake dog park? No. The Subarus are the dogs in the park, and the owners are standing on the on the fence line, and they're playing in the mud. And they're like, aren't they so cute, those Subarus just playing in the mud? Like, as if the Subaru was the pet. Mm. For me, I think Subaru has been really investing, from a marketing perspective, in this brand loyalty idea that you are different as a Subaru owner. Huh. And so it made me think of you, Will, actually. Oh, because I have a dog? Because you have a dog. Yeah. So Subaru was obviously targeting dog owners, saying a dog owner should have a Subaru. Mm. Now, let me ask you something. You have a dog. Would you consider a Subaru? Mm. Yeah. I don't mind. You think about it. A little more space in the back, in the trunk there? I've always wanted an Impreza. It's a, okay. Yeah. Well, that yeah. doesn't give you that much extra space for the dog, <laughs> unless you get the, the wagon version if they make it. Yeah. But my, But I'm telling you, my, this is weird when I saw this because my brother got a Subaru and he never talked about Subaru in his life. He got a Subaru recently and my parents got a Subaru recently. So I'm thinking something's going on. here Now, as you know, from a retention perspective, they passed Toyota. Who Toyota, they were the big dogs forever. Um, from, a, from, a, 
brand from a retention perspective. So anyway, we go down the list a little bit here for 2019. Subaru, Toyota, Honda, Ram, Ford, Kia, Chevy, Nissan, Hyundai, Jeep, Volkswagen, all the way down. But there's a big range. So the top of the list, 61.5% of Subaru owners got another Subaru from a Subaru. And down at the bottom where Smart is, although that brand is now defunct, we can go up there. We can go to Dodge even, Buick, Mini even. You go down 30%, 16%, very low, very low retention down at the bottom end. So there is a difference here. And of course, the person's experience with the product matters too. The product has to be good because they just spent the last year or however long they had the previous model for. They had to like it to go back into the dealer and re-up and get another one. But, but at the top range here, this appears to indicate loyalty and a connection that the individual has with the brand, not just the product, but the brand outside of the product. Mm. Now, on the luxury side, uh, apparently, there's more of a shakeup from year to year. There's less dominance, and there's a lower number overall because apparently luxury buyers, it's more emotionally driven, and they, they flip-flop a little more. They're, they don't, because they had the money to buy the luxury brand, they don't have to be as conservative, like, I need this thing to be as reliable. You know what I'm saying right, yeah. here? Like On a consistent basis. Yeah, the consistency. They feel like they could just, I don't know, get they another one. try out different models. Yeah, but it's, it's still not a different huge difference. You go from 61% in the top spot to 47% in the, in the luxury brand. 47% of Lexus buyers bought another Lexus in 2019. Mercedes-Benz is number two at 44. BMW, 43. Porsche, 43. It's all very close there. Except, again, when you get to the bottom, and what do you see down there? You see Jaguar. And Jaguar, I spoke about this in the past, a luxury brand, a prestigious brand. It seems like a cool brand. But on the same JD Power uh, ratings for initial quality, always at the bottom of the list. Hmm. Initial quality being like, I think, 30 days after you get the car. So in that case, people maybe wanted to engage with the brand, got the product. Maybe they were in the shop getting it repaired, and they're like, you know, next time around, I'm going to a German brand or Japanese. That's a huge jump. Huge. From uh, 20% to 32%. Yeah. Yeah, they're way down there at the bottom. So anyhow, I think it's interesting nonetheless. I guess people can tell me how loyal they are. To their, to their particular brands. We, of course, know about the brand loyalty in the tech segment. It exists elsewhere. It exists in the car segment as well. And uh, I think it's a good thing. Ultimately, if you have a good experience with a brand or product, re-up with them. But it's also a good thing to try out the new stuff too whenever possible because how else do you know? It's weird that they don't have Tesla here. No, Tesla's not in there. Yeah. Are, they might not be a mass market brand. I guess so. Oh, they're so new as well. That's a good point Kirk mm -hmm. makes. You're not, you're not re-upping. See, in this particular survey, where is it here? They say a person is determined by highest percentage of customers who buy a second car from the same brand. But, of course, there has to be some time passage because how long right, does a person yeah. typically uh, keep a car? If a current owner purchased the same brand after trading in an old purchase or lease. So that's the, the rule okay. there. Right. So at least, you know, can be three, four years. Mm. He's right. Tesla, not that old. He had a lot of original owners. So yep. the turnover might not be high enough to, to get on this particular list. But anyhow, interesting nonetheless. Subaru beats out Toyota 
What's your feeling uh, in the comments? What's your feeling about Subaru? Do they speak to you? Are you a dog owner? You go into a dog park. Will might get a Subaru after all this. Who knows? Anyway, well, uh, I'm going to send it over to you now. Do you have a topic you need to cover that's absolutely the most important thing of the day, or do you want to jump right into questions? Let's go for a question here. Okay, we're going to go right to the questions segment. A delicious question. What is your favorite <laughs> snack in the winter, summer, spring, fall? I didn't know I'm supposed to have a different snack in those. Yeah, oh, I guess, mood, I guess. I guess ice cream is a summer one. Oh, yeah. You don't do ice cream in. The, I guess uh, you could have like a like an iced coffee as well. You would never have. That's not a snack though, is it? I would say so. Oh yeah, yeah. You can get a fancy coffee. That counts as a snack. Oh man, when I, you know what's weird? When I think of snack, for some reason, I only think of like crunchy like chips, and I don't really think of. What do I snack on? Arrow. Oh, Daryl, you're talking about a protein bar? See, I feel like I don't even know if that counts as a snack. Snack, to me, has to be more fun. It can't have any nutrition. Something. Uh, I don't think a snack can have any nutrition guilty, in it. Uh, I don't think that counts. Like, if you want to come in here in the comments and go, I like to chomp on celery sticks. It's my favorite snack. No! Get out of here. It has to be unhealthy. Mm. No, it has to be unhealthy. Don't, don't, don't talk to me about that. That's food. Carrots are food, man. Just because you're snacking doesn't make it a snack. Stop. It's got to be unhealthy. So I'm going to take, for chips, uh, forget the spring, summer, fall. Okay. Please. Then what's your go-to? Um, but for chips, it's like, it's, it's just a straight up, it's a straight up chip. It's like a Miss Vicky's original salt. That's it. Let's not get crazy out here. It's fine. Just... Salty chip every so often. That's what we're going to do mm. for a snack. All right. Then on a, on the sweet side, I do like ice cream. I have been known to get myself a blizzard from Dairy Queen. Mm. They have a blizzard right now. It's an O. Henry peanut butter limited time blizzard. Now, I just get the mini size. I don't need a lot of it. You have it right there. It was the blizzard of the month last month. You have O. Henry, you have Reese's peanut butter blended. You have vanilla soft serve Dairy Queen ice cream. All right. Now I've been known to get one of these here and there. Yeah. I've been known. You understand? The people at Dairy Queen, they know me. And they flip it upside down. Yeah. And then I know what I'm in for as well. Okay. So good for you. There's a couple of snacks. That's a summer one. I'll take the chips in the winter. The rest of it, you're getting too crazy. But just remember, a snack should be unhealthy. Otherwise, you're just eating. Mm -hmm. There it is.